0: Hello, and welcome into the Star Wars Legends Lounge, the show that celebrates the books from Star Wars Legends. I'm Aaron Motes. On today's episode, I'm continuing the journey through the Clone Wars era with another first-time read. It's The Cestus Deception by Stephen Barnes, a story featuring Obi-Wan Kenobi, Kit Fisto, and Asajj Ventress. And the mass-market paperback copy that I own also contains a sequel novella Stephen Barnes called The Hive. So that was exciting to find out when I got to the end of the main story. It was like ordering french fries at a fast food joint and getting that one curly fry that's in the carton. Just a nice little present. But I'll get to that coming up. First, I want to thank everyone for the nice messages I've received about the special pop-up episode last week. And thanks again to Matt Thacker for his willingness to come on and answer some listener questions maybe that's something I'll try to do more of in the future. You all have been great sending in questions, so when I have a lot packed up in the queue, maybe I'll invite another guest on to help me answer them. I thought it worked out really well, and it was great to hear another person's opinions. I'm thinking maybe twice a year, or even quarterly if I get enough emails. Really, all that matters is how many great questions you all send in. And speaking of, let's get to today's listener question. It comes from listener Jason, who wrote a very nice email, but I had to shorten it a bit for today's show. Jason says, I've listened to your podcast since December of 2020. Thank you for doing this and for having an amazing podcast about Star Wars legends. I was born the same year A New Hope came out and have seen and read everything, so my knowledge of Star Wars Matters is pretty extensive. Now, I know the events... After Return of the Jedi is where canon and legends completely go their separate ways. But do you ever think they'll canonize and put out a TV show on Disney Plus or a movie about the Jedi war with the Yuuzhan Vong? And if they do, who will the Jedi be to fight them since canon hasn't recognized Jaina and Jason Solo or Ben Skywalker? Thank you, Aaron, and continue the awesome podcast. Well, thank you very much for the email, Jason and thank you for the kind words. I'm glad you're enjoying the show. Good questions. The Yuzhan Vong is one of those subjects that's divisive among Legends fans. When it came to the New Jedi Order series, you really like them, or you don't. There doesn't seem to be any in between. But you could see what the Legends authors were trying to do. Let's get in our time machine and go all the way back to 1999 real quick. A new Star Wars movie came out in May, and regardless of what people thought about the film, it was a really exciting time. But The Phantom Menace took us 35 years into the past in the Star Wars timeline. In the books, we were just over 20 years after the events of Return of the Jedi in the future. Our heroes from the original trilogy had dozens of additional adventures, mostly against the remnants of the empire. There were plenty of people, myself included, that wondered when was it going to be time for Luke and Leia and Han to step aside and let new heroes arise? And would there ever be a new enemy to face? How many times could a former imperial officer gather up some forces and attack the new republic? Well, The answer came in October 1999 with Vector Prime, the first book in the New Jedi Order series. I don't want to spoil it for anyone that hasn't read the series yet and is looking forward to it, but the New Jedi Order focuses on an alien species called the Yuzhan Vong that invades the galaxy and how the New Republic and the first generation of New Jedi trained by Luke respond to that invasion. The New Jedi Order is a series of 19 books and two novellas that take place over four years on the Legends timeline, between 25 ABY and 29 ABY. Personally, I love the New Jedi Order. For me, the Yuzhan Vong were an interesting opponent that, as the series went along, we learned were much more complex than they're depicted in the beginning of the series. But I understand why a lot of people didn't like them. And there are plenty of things in the New Jedi Order that I'm not a fan of. But overall, I do love the Yuzhan Vong. However, I don't think the New Jedi Order is going to be canonized, Jason. But it doesn't mean it's impossible to at least canonize aspects of the New Jedi Order. I could see a way for the Vong to be used in Star Wars canon. I could even see them used in a similar way to the New Jedi Order as a species of alien invaders. Maybe we'll get a glimpse of them in either the Ahsoka series or the event series that Kathleen Kennedy announced in 2020, whatever takes the story into the unknown regions, possibly to Chiss space. However, if the Vong are ever canonized, I don't think they'll be depicted as they were in the NJO, where they were absent in the Force. And I don't think a war with the Vong will be led by the Jedi, like they were in the NJO. I mean, we've already seen what happens when the Jedi lead a war. It allows for the rise of corruption and evil. But even if we set that aside, Jason, who are the Jedi left to stand up to the Vong? If they were to set up a Vong invasion during the Mandoverse time, about five years after Return of the Jedi on the timeline, the only Jedi we know of at that time is Luke. We also have Ahsoka Tano, Grogu, a toddler in Ben Solo, and possibly Ezra Bridger as other Force users. If a Vong invasion is set later on the timeline, like after the sequel trilogy, The only Jedi we have is Rey, and then possible other Force users in Finn, Grogu, and Ezra. So I just don't see how they could set up a Jedi-Vong war, unless they wanted to set it in the distant past. That's the only time we know of where there are enough Jedi to battle a Yuzhan Vong invasion. Regardless, I'd like to see the Vong brought into canon, and if they ever are, I hope Lucasfilm keeps some of the same complex dynamics and interclass fighting within the alien species. Thank you very much for the email, Jason. Now, listener, if you have a question and want it answered on the show, email me at swlegendslounge at gmail.com, or you can send a tweet at legendslounge1. Or if you'd like to get your voice on the show, just record it and email it in. Just please record it in an MP3 or MP4 audio format. Now it's time to dive into today's book. It's The Cestus Deception, a Clone Wars novel by Stephen Barnes. Grab yourself a drink and let's head in to the Star Wars Legends Lounge. <laughs> The Clone Wars continue, and Count Dooku's droid army may be adding a new, deadlier weapon, a Jedi killer droid. What makes them so dangerous is that the JK-13 droids contain a partially biological intelligence that can touch the Force, allowing them to anticipate a Jedi's movements. The story begins with a demonstration. Chancellor Palpatine shows Jedi Masters Obi-Wan Kenobi and Kit Fisto how dangerous the droids can be, ordering a clone ARC trooper to attack one of the droids. It's not even a contest. The JK-13 anticipates all of the trooper's movements and incapacitates him in less than a minute. Then, Kit Fisto steps into the arena. Kit's moves are faster than the eye can follow, but the droid moves with him, landing several blows to the Jedi. The demonstration fascinates Obi-Wan, who can feel a force buzz surrounding the droid. Something's not right. The JK-13 can tell what Kit is going to do before Kit does it. It's amazing. The droid is going to defeat one of the Jedi's greatest one-on-one fighters. But, just as it looks like he's about to lose the fight, Kit jumps inside the droid's attack and slices with his green lightsaber, destroying the Jedi killer. In the aftermath of the fight, Palpatine tells the Jedi the secret of the JK-13 is a creature called a Dashta eel, a creature from the planet Ord Cestus that can touch the Force. The droids are being manufactured by Cestus Cybernetics, and the Chancellor says the Separatists are about to purchase hundreds of them. Palpatine asks the Jedi to deal with the situation. To stop the Separatists from purchasing the droids, and to stop Ord Sestis from seceding from the Republic. The Jedi send Obi-Wan, Kit Fisto, and a small squad of clones under the command of ARC Trooper Nate to Ord Sestis. Obi-Wan and Republic Barrister Dulb Snoil appeal to the Sestian government, meeting with the planet's regent, Gamai Durris, and members of the five families that control Cestus cybernetics. Obi-Wan and Snoil learn that Duris is really just a puppet. She wants what's best for Ord Cestus, but the real power lies with the five families, and they're only concerned with the lucrative offer on the table from Count Dooku. Obi-Wan warns the group that unless they shut down the manufacturing of the JK droids, Chancellor Palpatine will send a Republic task force to the system, prepared to bombard the planet for joining the Separatist movement. Meanwhile, Kit and the clones set up a hidden camp in the mountains outside the capital. Their job? To secretly set up a rebellion from the planet's oppressed farmers and miners in case diplomacy fails. When supplies arrive at the camp, Nate meets a cargo pilot named Sheikah Tull, a former lover of Jango Fett, the genetic foundation of the clone army. Sheikah tells Nate a few things about her relationship with the bounty hunter, telling him about the similarities she sees between Jango and the clones. But when Sheikah asks Nate about his thoughts and feelings, she gets frustrated with many of his responses about his loyalty to the Republic and his brothers. Sheikah implores Nate to start thinking outside of his programming, and he does. Nate changes his name to Django tat the Mandalorian word for Django's brother. He also asks Kit Fisto to show him some Jedi exercise techniques to allow the clones to become more in-tuned with their environment. In the capital city, negotiations are going poorly. Obi-Wan and Snoil meet with a Cestian crime boss to purchase information about Cestus cybernetics and the catacombs that run under the city. After the meeting, Obi-Wan feels a strange presence, something odd, yet familiar. Obi-Wan begins to think there's something else working against them on Ord cestus that not everything is what it appears, but there's nothing he can put his finger on. Failing in their negotiations, Obi-Wan and Snoil leave the city and join the rebel camp. As the clones continue training the rebel volunteers, a group of JK droids attacks. Some of the clones and rebels are killed in the raid, with the survivors splitting up and fleeing through the catacombs. Jango-Tat is seriously wounded, but Sheikah saves him, loading Jango-Tat into her ship And flying him to her home village several kilometers away from the capital. In the village, Jango-Tat is nursed back to health. During his convalescence, he meets Sheikah's children and sees the simple life the villagers lead. One day, Sheikah leads Jango-Tat into a cave and shows him a pool of dashta eels. The creatures don't use the force like the Jedi, but they resonate with life energy. Django tat feels a peace and warmth he's never felt before, and it's incredible, touching the Force and feeling in tune with the universe in a way he's never experienced. When they return to the village, Django tat thanks Sheikah for showing him her life, but even though he feels the pull to stay in the village, he has to go back to help his brothers and those suffering during the war. After spending one last night in the village with Sheikah, Jango Tat returns to the mountain camp. He sends out an emergency message and soon locates the new camp where the rebels have relocated. Obi-Wan gets a message out to Coruscant and tells the Chancellor about what's happened. Palpatine says he's sending a Republic cruiser to the system. Obi-Wan has until it arrives to resolve the situation or prepare for orbital bombardment. Obi-Wan and Kit begin leading guerrilla attacks on the five families, hitting their manufacturing and mining facilities. They purchase plans for the tunnels beneath Cestus' cybernetics and lead a strike team beneath the facility. Again, Obi-Wan gets that strange feeling that something is wrong. And finally, it reveals itself. Asajj Ventress and a group of native Cestians are waiting for the Jedi, trapping them between the cavern wall In an underground lake. Meanwhile, the Republic cruiser arrives and prepares to fire on the capital. At the rebel camp, Jango Tat decides to ignore the Jedi's orders to stay put, and heads off with two members of the rebellion to a lake resort where the members of the five families have fled to, far away from the capital. The three are attacked by a JK droid guarding the compound. The droid easily handles the squad, until one of the rebels pulls out an explosive and allows the JK-13 to grab him. He releases the explosive, blowing up the droid and sacrificing himself. Jango Tat breaks into the compound, finds the communication room, calls the Republic cruiser in orbit, and redirects the bombardment. The cruiser fires, raining death on the compound, killing the five families and Jango Tat. While Obi-Wan deals with the Sestian attackers, Kit Fisto advances on Ventress. The duel is intense, but Kit is exhausted. Ventress takes advantage and gets under Kit's guard, slicing his side and knocking him into the lake. Finally, Obi-Wan is able to fight through the Sestians and attacks Ventress himself. Eventually, they both end up in the water too, where mysteriously their rebreathers are ripped away. In the confusion, Obi Wan slashes Ventress, who flees into the catacombs. Following the fight, the Jedi learn the five families have been killed. Political power reverts to Regent Gamai Durris, who shuts down manufacturing of the Jedi killer droids and signs a treaty to stay with the Republic. Now, following the Cestus deception, comes the events of the novella *The Hive*. Regent Durris and members of the Cestian ruling council ask Obi-Wan to accompany one of the soldiers deep into the planet to retrieve the last remaining royal eggs. The Sestians hid the eggs in the catacombs about a century earlier, when a deadly plague wiped out more than 80% of the hive. As Obi-Wan and the soldier, Jensen, descend into the catacombs, they find a nightmare. Thousands of dead Cestians, their hollow exoskeletons littering the floor. It's as if the members of the hive that sealed themselves off from the surface resorted to cannibalism, wiping themselves out. They enter into a second cavern, and Obi-Wan and Jensen feel a tremor under the ground. At first, Kenobi thinks it's an earthquake, but suddenly, three huge carnivorous worms erupt from under the dirt. Obi-Wan and Jensen scramble up on a rock formation to keep away from the worms, but The smell and the noise attracts more of the creatures. Soon, hundreds of the monsters are crawling around the dirt. Trapped on the rocks, Kenobi and Jensen use a grappling gun to shoot a cable across the cavern. They shimmy across the line, keeping above the worms crawling across the floor. After a slow trip of over 50 meters, Obi-Wan and Jensen make it to a rocky overhang on the far side of the cavern. They escape through a heavy metal door to a final room. There, the two find a chair and a computer. They learn the worms were originally placed in the cavern as a passive security system to keep the eggs safe. But, as the underground hive grew, the worms escaped, dug into the soil, and grew larger. They attacked and ate many of the Cestians, forcing the survivors to barricade themselves in the first cavern. There, they found themselves trapped, eventually succumbing to cannibalism And slowly dying out. Jensen sits down in the chair to face the final test. The computer will ask him a riddle. He has three chances to answer correctly, or the computer will release a poisonous gas, killing everyone in the room and the eggs. Jensen answers the first riddle incorrectly, and then the second. He tries to stop the test, but the computer says he must either answer the third riddle or die. Obi-Wan convinces Jensen to answer the final riddle, and he does. Incorrectly. Quickly, gas pours into the room. Jensen falls unconscious while Obi-Wan tries to slice through the door with his lightsaber, but there's no time. Just as Kenobi feels faint, the gas is quickly sucked back out of the room. Confused, Obi-Wan checks on Jensen and shakes him awake. What's going on? Jensen asks they turn as the computer raises a vault out of the floor. It turns out the riddles were just a test. If a native Cestian was willing to die for the eggs, the vault would open, allowing access to them. The computer also starts playing a low resonating thrumming sound, which chases off the carnivorous worms, allowing Obi-Wan and Jensen clear access to return to the surface. With the death of the five families and power reverting back to the native Cestians, Regent Durus and the ruling council hope to hatch the eggs and birth a new pair of royals, thus reuniting the hive across Ord Cestus. Time for a break. When we come back, I'll talk more about the Cestus deception. I'm Aaron Moats. Stay tuned. You're listening to the Star Wars Legends Lounge. Thanks for listening to the Star Wars Legends Lounge, where we celebrate the books from Star Wars Legends, but allow me to suggest a book from Star Wars Canon. Queen's Shadow is the story of Padme Amidala, after she steps down as Queen and steps up to represent Naboo in the Galactic Senate. Together with her loyal handmaidens and the help of new allies, Padme tries to navigate the labyrinth that is galactic politics on Coruscant. That's Queen Shadow by E.K. Johnston. Welcome back to the Star Wars Legends Lounge, the show that celebrates the books from Star Wars Legends. I'm Aaron Moats, and today's book is *The Cestus Deception*, and the following novella, *The Hive*, both by Stephen Barnes. I tell you what, I really liked the underlying political intrigue in *The Cestus Deception*, that the Republic is trying to keep another planet. From seceding while also trying to ensure that the company manufacturing the Jedi Killer droids shuts down manufacturing and agrees to continue to follow the rules and laws set forth by the Republic. Some of that is the same as the previous book we did on the show, The Approaching Storm. What's different? In this case, in my opinion, is the secondary plan where Obi-Wan Kenobi and Kit Fisto set up a group of guerrilla fighters to try to harass and harry the ruling council on Ord Cestus and, more specifically, Cestus Cybernetics. I like how a lot of that was done. There were certain aspects of the characters, specifically Obi Wan, that didn't quite feel like Obi Wan to me. But you got to remember, this story was published back in 2004, just after only a year after Attack of the Clones had been released in theaters. Yes. It has some of the same things for Obi-Wan. His distrust of politicians. His wry sense of humor is sprinkled throughout this book. The one thing that I found a bit odd was how he and Kit arrived at the planet already with a secondary plan. One to attack facilities owned by the five families just seems odd to me that the Jedi would come up with such an aggressive plan in case things didn't go their way. However, some bits of this storyline remind me of things we have seen in Star Wars canon. Think of the Onderon arc from the Clone Wars television show, where... Anakin, Obi-Wan, and Ahsoka Tano are teaching a group of rebels on the planet Onderon, led by Saul Guerrera and his sister Steela. However, if I remember that arc correctly, Onderon had already fallen to Separatist forces. In the Cestus Deception, Ord Cestus had not allied itself yet with the Separatists. It was still technically a Republic planet. But the issue is the five families were considering seceding the planet and Jordan the Separatists. Now, what did the Cestus Deception mean? It turns out all of that was a ploy by Count Duku and Asajj Ventress to lure out some of the Jedi, to lure out New Republic military forces to Ord Cestus. They really had no plans to use the Jedi killer droids because the droids had a flaw in them. The dash to eels that could touch the force, they were good security droids. They could guard a facility, they could guard property, but they did not make good soldiers. It turns out, when the Eels did something that touched the dark side of the force, they kind of went crazy and self-destructed. I wasn't 100% clear on that in the story, but suffice to say, the droids did not make good soldiers. And Dooku and Ventress knew this. They simply set it all up to try to lure Republic forces to Ord Sestis, which would, in turn, spook the population into thinking, the Republic is this dictatorship that won't allow us to live the way we want to live. And in doing so, Ord Sestis would then secede and join the Separatist Alliance. Obi-Wan doesn't figure that out until very late in the story. It's actually pretty interesting. The author, Stephen Barnes, hides that pretty well. You can tell something else is going on in the chapters where we're kind of inside Obi-Wan's head. Because he's suspicious of the regent, Gamay Duras. And he's suspicious of the five families. And he can sense Asajj Ventress's presence on the planet. Now, he doesn't know it's Asajj Ventress. He just feels this darkness in the Force that's muddying the waters of his negotiations with the ruling council. Now, we as the reader know it's Asajj Ventress because she pokes her head out every once in a while. Like right after Obi-Wan speaks with the crime boss, Ventress shows up and basically tells the criminal to go along with Obi-Wan's plans up to a point where Ventress can then spring her trap. It's a fun cat-and-mouse game where the mouse doesn't really know what's going on. The other part of this story that I really did like was ARC Trooper Nate, who eventually renamed himself Django Tat. The part of the story where after he gets wounded... He's convalescing in Sheikah's village for an unknown amount of time. I'm guessing it took about a week from the way it was written, but they don't expressly say how long he's there. But the way he imagines his life outside of the Grand Army of Republic, a simple life in Sheikah's village, helping the farmers of the village, playing and raising Sheikah's children. And again, part of this reminded me of things we have seen in canon, specifically in the Clone Wars. The deserter cut Luquain, a clone that decided he had had enough, and he left the Grand Army of the Republic, married a Twi'lek woman named Sue, and became stepfather to her children. Now, that's a bridge too far for Nate slash Tat, but some of his inner turmoil also remind me of Captain Rex's inner turmoil as the series went along, where he asked, what is it we'll do after this war? Was the war worth it? Now, in Django Tat's case, we never get to see the outcome of that. He sacrifices himself in order to save Obi-Wan and Kit and everyone else that's in the capital when he calls the Republic Cruiser to change the target of their bombardment and changes it to the lake resort where the five families are hiding out a couple of kilometers outside the city. In Clone Wars, of course, Rex does have some regrets, but we see that he never really leaves the fight. That in the Bad Batch, it appears he has joined the infant rebellion against the Empire. And then, of course, flash forward a little over a decade later to the events of Rebels, where he and a couple other clones have decided to finally go into a sort of retirement, but... He's drug back into the fight. I imagine that would be more the path that Jango Tat would take. But regardless, it was really interesting to me to see inside the head of a clone who thinks about more than just the Grand Army of the Republic. I do have a few criticisms about the book. Mostly in some of the decisions that the Jedi make that, to me, feel extremely un-Jedi-like. But, to be fair to Stephen Barnes, a lot of the decisions the Jedi make during the Clone Wars are very un-Jedi-like. That's what brings about the downfall of the Order. So... While I am not the biggest fan of some of the decisions made in this book, I can't say it's not consistent with what we learn of in the prequel trilogy and the animated shows that follow. Now, when it comes to the novella at the end, The Hive, the whole time I'm reading it, what I'm seeing in my mind's eye is... Something similar to Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, where Obi-Wan and Jensen have to prevail over three obstacles, the last one basically being a leap of faith. It's very similar to Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. If you like that, you'll like this novella. If you think it's too on the nose, maybe it's not for you. Well, time to wrap up. If you have a question or comment for the show, you can email me at swlegendslounge at gmail.com or send a tweet at legendslounge1. Or, if you want to get your voice on the show, record your own audio file and email it in. Just remember, record it in MP3 or MP4 format. And, keep sending me in your Star Wars favorite character Starfighter squadrons. I didn't receive any this week, but you can still send me yours. I love reading them. And, they can be from anything. Movies, television shows, animation, books, comics, video games, canon, legends. None of the different Star Wars continuities. What about Lego? Nobody's included someone from the Freemaker Adventures yet in their squadron. There are no rules, people. Just tell me who would make the most awesome fighter squadron from your favorite Star Wars characters. Now, coming up with the next episode, it's the next Clone Wars-era Legends novel, Jedi Trial, by David Sherman and Dan Craig. Look for that episode on September 16th. Once again, thank you so much for listening to the Star Wars Legends Lounge. I'm Aaron Motes. May the Force be with you. And remember, there's always a bit of truth in legends.